Hey, this is Brian O'Connell with Live Nation, and we are on Promoter 101. Welcome to the last episode of March. It's the highly educational Promoter 101 podcast. And I'm Jamie Loeb, joined by Emporium Presents Dan Steinberg. Thanks for filling in today, Jamie. It's always great to have you back on the podcast. Our London sessions continue with Roundhouse's Jane Bees while she talks about her amazing path in the industry. Plus, a first for Promoter 101, a brand new segment. Drum roll, please. Cooking Tips with Madison House's Adam Bauer. Something hitting close to home for you, huh, Jamie? Yeah. Fans of the smoked meat arts will really enjoy that. This is Karen from 10 Club Ticketing, and I'm on Promoter 101. If you've missed any of our past episodes, we've got them saved for you. And this week, we really suggest you go back and listen to episode 83. It's a humdinger. It features Coda Music Agency's Rob Chalice. He shares his worldview. Moo TV's Scott Scoville takes a peek of what's going on backstage on the cutting edge of production. And we have a war story from stage manager mastermind Joel Pryor. If you're not too busy... Maybe you could drop us a review, tell some people about the podcast, share some likes. Maybe, please, a little. Tiny one. What would it hurt? It's only going to take you a second. Just a tiny one. Just a small one. This is Eddie Clemens from United Talent Agency. I'm here on Promoter 101. Up next, a first for Promoter 101. It's a brand new segment, folks. It's Cooking Tips with Madison House's Adam Bauer. This segment is something we don't normally have on Promoter 101, but when you have someone that just kills social media with mouth-watering, cravingly good meat segments, we got to have a cooking segment today. Adam Bauer, do a little cooking show with us. Teach us about how you make that brisket the way you do. Oh my God, it looks so good. Well, so the brisket that I make is a trademarked and patented process that takes over a month to basically procure. Kind of like getting a date confirmed. Yeah. So I confirm a show and then I put the brisket in a brine. No, in a serious note, I go down to Costco because they have the best brisket. It's USDA prime choice for $3.29 a pound. inside scoop. Costco. Costco brisket. I could say it's like Cornman Farms or something else or some grain-fed beef out in Montana or something else like that. But it all comes from the same processing plant. It's USDA Prime and it's $3.29 right now. Costco, go down, get some. Then with a mixture of salts and sugars and other spices, mix it all up together and drop. Basically, we're doing all kinds of meat now. We've expanded the Monstrami brand. Monstrami. Monstrami. It is a, for those meatheads out there, it's a cross between Montreal smoked meat and pastrami. It's a combination of the two. I use processes from both to create what it is today. So we brine it for about 30 days, at least for the brisket. And then I also do pork for about the same length of time. And then we've also expanded the brand into poultry. We're working on those birds right now, but we've done duck, chicken, very successfully, pheasant, okay, a little gamey, but actually it takes the game right out of it. It's interesting. It's unique. And then uh, turkey, which is a work in progress. You'll have that ready in time for Thanksgiving though, right? We got plenty I, I of time. I think so. I think we're going to, I'm going to get a whole bird. That's the piece that's missing. So many whole birds out there during Thanksgiving and then come March, you just can't find them at the store anymore. Dude, you got to 
bring one to Aspen one of these years for us, man. It's got to happen. We may actually be doing some monstrami at Electric Forest this year. So if you're in the industry and at Electric Forest, you may get a chance to sample some of it. We're still fine-tuning that process, seeing if we can do it out there. Anyways, so we brine it for 30 days. This is the brisket we're talking about. And so once the brisket is done brining, it gets yanked out. And then with a combination of different pepper and salts, both black pepper, red pepper, and other kinds of pepper. Oh, so this is a healthy thing. Sort of, yeah. I am fine-tuning the salt intake on it, but it's a very healthy thing. It's very lean. This is not much fat in that thing at all. So we pull it out of the tanks. From there, it goes onto the smoker. It'll smoke generally for however long it takes, usually 12 to 14 hours. And the finished product is monstrami. So the pork is done a little bit differently because we make pulled pork with it. We don't care as much about the crust on it. So when we do the pulled pork, we brine that, we smoke it for same length of time, roughly, and then we finish in a sous vide for lay term. That's like it's like a bath, right? Water bath, basically, but it makes it just like fall apart. All of those different products are not available at your local supermarket. At some point in the distant future or not so distant future, maybe we'll start mail order for all the industry people out there. It's I got to find time for it. I just don't have enough time, man. Too many shows to book, too many people to put on the road. We all just have seen those pictures forever and had to know more. And this goes as a direct offer to any friends out there in the industry that come into the great state of Michigan to visit us. With enough notice, I will prepare uh, brisket or pork or something in the Monstrami line for you. So if you're coming into Ann Arbor to visit us in Michigan, or occasionally I'll bring some out to Boulder, Colorado, to the mothership or down to Nashville. If you come visit us in one of those places and I'm there, we'll try to have some Monstrami on hand. This would be the point on the show if we were a cooking show where we pull some out of the oven that's already prepared for us to try. But I know you didn't know this. Was uh, here, here it is. Here's some right here. It's delicious. <laughs> Thank you so much. The great chef. Adam Bauer. Thank you. Oh my God. Adam's mad skills in the kitchen. If you've ever followed Adam on Instagram or Facebook, you just know how good that stuff looks. And man, I wish we had Taste of Vision right now. <laughs> this is Marsha Vlasic, president of AGI Talent Agency on Promoter 101. week. I hope you're ready because it's time for Tweets of the Week. The word of the day is contingent. Seems everything in our business has contingent tied to it. This can happen unless that happens. Whatever happened, just free and clear. Remember those rare days of just, hey, we're going to do a show. That's it. It's a lot less complicated. I miss those days. <laughs> the phone has rung twice before 8 a.m. It appears it's time to get up and work. Hashtag joy of living on the left coast. Whether you're ready to work or not, the industry is telling you it's time to get the fuck out of bed. It's our responsibility to mentor the next generation, you know. Something Bill Silva and Kevin Lyman taught me way back in the early days. I really am a firm believer. We got to give back to the next generation. Otherwise, they'll just be arrogant, pompous pieces of little shit. Oh, shit. Too late. <laughs> Agreed. That's a wrap for Tweets of the Week. You can follow on Twitter at The Jew. I'm The Jew. Hi, my name's Ed Bicknell and I'm Promoter 101 and I'm in room 24 something and I've got an inside leg measurement of 32 inches and a cup size of 31A. In our feature interview this week, we've got Roundhouse's Jane Bees sitting down with us to talk about her amazing path in the industry. Jane Bees, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. You've got a legendary career and we can start 
with what you're doing currently, but I kind of want to jump to the dessert because I'm a huge New York Dolls fan. Ah, well, so am I. Can we talk about your time as a tour manager and then like circle back to what you're doing now? Because I want to start with dessert if I can be a kid in a candy Absolutely. shop. Absolutely. This was 2004 and the Dolls reformed or the three of them reformed with some other amazing musicians to play as part of Morrissey's Meltdown at the Southbank Centre in London. Which you also had a hand in. Well, I was the event manager on that festival at the time. I later went on to become the director of that festival. But at the time, I was sort of in charge of the logistics. And obviously, the dolls haven't played together in a really long time, hadn't actually seen each other in quite a long time. So it was kind of an amazing personal reunion as well as a musical reunion. Morrissey had phoned them up. I think this is in his book, so I'm not saying anything that you can't see in print. He'd phoned up David to... uh, find out whether it would even be a possibility and I think Morrissey had to I think the story goes as he was in his back garden in LA and he had to take a couple of shots of vodka before he made the phone call <laughs> Did he work up the courage? <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think David's first question to him was would you want to get back with your old band so you know, <laughs> David's humour was always on message from the start but anyway we made this happen and they came over we thought initially wait for Morrissey one... wasn't a band? no 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 well, yeah <laughs> did you remember them? <laughs> the eye rolls that I'm getting across the internet at this moment yeah, he, he, um, please don't send emails. I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> well, that that was an interesting meltdown. Actually, I really, really enjoyed working on that one. It was kind of fascinating to be up close with one of my idols from my teenage years. So, so we thought the dolls were coming over for one show. It ended up being two. And the great and the good came out to see them and it was kind of incredible. And obviously they didn't have any infrastructure. They just came over with their manager, Darren. And off the back of those shows, they got offered a bunch of other shows, including a big support slot with Morrissey in Manchester. And then to come back, which was like three weeks after the Meltdown shows. So they came back for that one. And that was kind of really sad because two days before they were due to come over, I had a phone call from Darren, the manager, saying "Um, Arthur's passed away and... Nobody had known that he was poorly and he might have known he was poorly. And when the rest of the band came back over, there was a lot of speculation about that and kind of revisiting all the conversations that we'd had in June and whether he knew. And it turned out that he'd gone to the doctors with what he thought was a cold and he was diagnosed with leukemia and died within 48 hours, I think. So Of knowing? Finding out, yeah, of being diagnosed. So it was, it was really kind of sad. But some new people came on board. Sammy Yaffe from Hanoi Rocks was the new bass player at that point, which was you know, a great addition to the team. And because the infrastructure hadn't existed for them, the technical and logistical infrastructure from the Meltdown team kind of became the tour party. Yeah, we got adopted as tour manager, production manager. Some of our production crew came out with us as well. And then off the back of that, there were some more dates, which were Reading and Leeds. So we started at Reading Festival and went up to Leeds. And then I guess we got a plane and flew over to Dublin and then did shows in Dublin and Belfast, which are kind of legendary. And we were Followed around Ireland by various artists, including Shane McGowan. You know you're doing something cool when you got the Pogues following you. Yeah, yeah. when you're being stalked by Shane, it's kind of a good thing. But they were great shows. Being in Ireland was amazing. And then we did one, I did one last show with them in somewhere in northern Spain, which was kind of an amazing festival. But they sent a driver to pick us up from Madrid Airport who... It was like a three-hour drive to the festival, and he clearly hadn't slept the night before. And it was possibly one of the most terrifying journeys of my entire life. I thought was going to be responsible for the deaths of the two remaining New York Dolls, but it was. We got through it. There were some hairy moments. We played at like four in the morning or something, headlining this show. It was. It was kind of insane. I don't think any of us slept. But yeah, I have really, really fond memories. Man, I, I can't even imagine being there. But how amazing! And the fact that they played the shows anyway. It's one of those things that Roger Daltrey just put his book out recently and talked about. John Enwistle's passing 
and then continuing to tour. As a Who fan, I was kind of curious about the fact that they finished out that tour because he died two days before the start of the tour. And it turned out that they were more concerned about the financial issues for Whistle's family if the band didn't tour because it was the coroner had very clearly figured out that this was a drug issue, an overdose from Coke, and that the insurance wouldn't cover it, that the estate would have been responsible for making good. And if they didn't play these dates out, Whistle's family would have been really holding the bag and they wanted to make sure his kids were cared for. So they had to play the dates regardless of the fact they were mourning. So sometimes when you hear the story 20 years later of why some of that stuff actually happens or plays out is much more than just how can they do these dates? I don't think it was that difficult a decision because I think what we all knew was how much it meant to Arthur to do those two shows at oh, South cool. Bank. So and what he would have wanted. That was very much the, the take on it, yeah. And having taken 30 years to get to that stage, you know, because, you know, they hadn't spoken to each other and they'd all made various different assumptions about how well the others were doing in their careers and how much money people have made. And it was, you know, a lot of it, when they came to London that first time round, a lot of it came out in the wash. It was a very healing time, actually, I think, for them to discover really the truth of what had been going on over the past 30 years. And I think, yeah, we all felt that Arthur would have not seen any benefit in those shows not continuing to happen for a little bit of time. Kind of a cool memorial of way to tribute and send him out yeah. to. You were at some of the biggest agencies in the world, right? 13 Air Artist, ITV. Like you, <laughs> you've got some story to tell here. I mean, like Radiohead, yeah. for God's sakes. Wait, like I was just thinking about this this morning as I entered ILMC. <laughs> and I was thinking about writing a book, actually, because there are some stories. And I mean, for God's sakes, you work for Barry Dickens. How cool is that? Some people probably don't want those stories put in print, but that's probably all the more reason to do it. Um, now, I worked, um, first of all, I worked at a booking agency called Asgard in Camden, and I left there to go and work for Charlie at ITB, and he was representing Radiohead as well as a huge amount of other artists. And I started working for him pretty much just before OK Computer came out. So that was... You were there a really, moment. really amazing time. What wasn't amazing about it was that it was very, you know, there were two female booking agents in London at the time. All the agents' assistants were women, and it was very much a glass ceiling. Was it Emma and Lucy? It was Emma and Maria. Okay. Maria May. So this is pre-Lucy Dickens. Well, Lucy was working in the office at ITB at the right, time. She hadn't become yeah. an agent yet. She was still no, just working no, for her dad. She was, she was just working. And yeah, it was, as you say, incredible to work for... Well, incredible to work for Charlie, but also incredible to work for Barry and Rod as well, who are, you know, two titans of the industry and very different characters in very brilliant ways. And we had some amazing times. And I think the nice thing about ITV is I made two of my best friends that I still see now, girlfriends I met during my time at ITB. It's kind of like family, you know, if you walk back in there, I'd get a hug from Barry, I'd get a hug from Rod if I walked in there today. So, you know, I haven't been there for 20 years, but it does feel like family once you've been part of it. And then Charlie decided to set up his own agency, 13. So we left ITB and started that in, gosh, what year was it? Probably 98, something like that. And then a couple of years later, I kind of just felt like moving on. I'd been an agent's assistant for most of my 20s. And I think I just wanted to try something new. It had become quite cyclical. So I left 13, not necessarily knowing what I was going to do. So I kind of made quite a big jump. Which is kind of ballsy because you could have been there forever. Ballsy or stupid is one of the other. <laughs> but <laughs> most people with the security, if you were established agent and artist, and at 13, you could have been there forever. You had security. I love going to visit 13 now in Brighton and see how much it's grown. You know, it's really an incredible organization. I think it was probably just a bit blind, but I knew 
it felt difficult to find another job whilst I was in that job, actually. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I just wanted to go and see what was out there. And at the time, I think I just also thought I didn't want to be in music anymore. <laughs> that didn't last so long. I got a phone call about a week later from an amazing woman called Lizzie McCudden, who was doing this job at the South Bank and she was leaving and her immediate boss was leaving as well. He was moving to LA and she was going to work, I think at the time, at Mute Records. And so I went over there, kind of got slotted into this job without being interviewed. I wasn't interviewed for it till about seven months into the job. That was sort of the start of the South Bank meltdown journey, which ended up lasting 15 years. So Meltdown is one of the coolest festivals in the history of Europe. How cool was that to be involved with that? It was amazing because it had a rich history, even by the time that I started working on it. It had had curators previously, including, I mean, they got Scott Walker. You know, he was a, he was a major recluse and they managed to get him to do it. They managed to get Nick Cave to do it, John Peel, uh, Laurie Anderson. It started out in its first few years, largely coming from a sort of more contemporary classical music bent. It was kind of extraordinary because it was a mix. It was before anybody was really doing this and it was a mix of anything that those artists wanted to see on stage. So it could include anything. It obviously came from a music disposition, but it could include anything from literature to dance pieces. And of course, the, the framework of working at the South Bank Centre, which has three extraordinary venues with huge technical and production capacities, an amazing team of people, and all the spaces in between because it's a 20-acre site. So it was it was really, the offer to the curator is, is pretty much a blank canvas of what would you like your festival to look like? And I think it did change the way that people looked at programming festivals in that it doesn't just need to be a straightforward set of musical performances and it can be more about collaboration and what would you do if you just throw threw all of your favourite artists into a box and let them play with each other? It was just brilliant. I think it's really nice for artists to get out of their usual cyclical, you know, recording, touring, hamster wheel and just be able to do something a bit different. So clearly whoever's curating is probably performing at those events too, I assume. Most of the time we would try and make that stipulation. Sometimes an artist is out of cycle with their records or they don't have a show ready or they have a show that they're planning two or three years down the line, which might be, you know, sort of in gestation period, but it's not ready for public consumption yet. So for me, one of the most memorable things was when David Byrne decided to take the lead role in a sort of contemporary New York theatre piece, which was fantastic. So he, you know, he took the stage and of course, everybody, everybody and his, the world and his wife were wanting a Talking Heads reunion, but that's not where David's head's at and I don't think ever will be. And why should it be? Just because that's what we would like to see. Yeah, it's like been there, done that. We've yeah. moved on. Yeah. And David's pretty much always about looking forward. You know, he's, he's not a nostalgic. I don't think anybody leaves a David Byrne show and not saying, I got a good show tonight. Yeah. Did you see his last tour? Oh, God. It that's, was amazing. I was like, we were lucky enough to see it at Hammersmith and it was we saw it at the O2 later as well, but I think Hammersmith really was, I, I was, you know, in my job, obviously I see a lot of live music and sometimes it, it can feel a bit saturated. And I remember specifically that night going over to Hammersmith, I was in the middle of shortlisting for a job for somebody in my team. So I turned up to the restaurant, my poor ever beleaguered husband waiting for me. I'm sitting eating dinner with him going through these job applications. I mean, he puts up with way too much, are huge? And just feeling quite, you know, quite fed up with live music and then just going into that David Byrne show and feeling like I coming out feeling like I'd had a blood transfusion. It was You re energized? Re energizing. It was just brilliant. And I I look forward to seeing the influence that that show has on the next generation of artists 
in terms of rethinking how you can present a gig. All right, let's talk about the current gig. You've gotten to do some really cool things. Like you keep jumping from cool thing to cool thing. Like how does that happen? Like it's so cool. I'm not sure. It's been luck more than judgment, I would say. I'd been at the South Bank for 15 years and I'd been in a series of different roles there, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It's also probably too long to stay in an institute, in a cultural institution like that, because, you know, you can become a bit institutionalized. So I had started looking and then, uh, you know, there were roles. I, I don't. So once again, you decided I've got security and I can do this forever, but I need a challenge. I felt like it was time for a change, but I also kind of knew I didn't want to leave London. There aren't that many jobs in London that I had my eye on. Doesn't sound like there's that many jobs in London you haven't done yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> in in live, maybe not. I was lucky my predecessor at the Roundhouse had decided it was time for him to have a change as well. So that job came up for the first time in seven years. And I kind of jumped at the chance of, of moving there. Okay, let's talk about what you do at Roundhouse because you're overseeing 100 plus shows, right? Like real volume. Yeah, that's 100 plus shows coming in through external promoters. So we work with everybody from Live Nation through Bird on the Wire and Eat Your Own Ears and everybody in between. So that's an interesting set of relationships. Eat your own ears. Yeah. I love that. They're really interesting. Do you know Field Day? Yeah. So they're responsible for Field Day. So they're Fucking cool name. Eat your own ears. With an amazing roster. If you ever get thrust one of their leaflets after a gig in your hand, you'll probably see some of the most interesting shows that are coming up musically in London in the next three or four months. And they operate, you know, from very small venues right up to Ali Pali and then through to Field Day and... No, they've got a really good ear. Before they eat it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so your day-to-day at Roundhouse, you're working with all these different promoters. How do you bring that all together? For me, the interesting thing about having this job is the breadth of the remit, really, because we do, in the music team, we do three things, essentially. We run that side of the program, so we choreograph the diary for those shows, and we oversee and do all the logistics for those shows. Then we also promote and program our own work, which, is, as you mentioned, is Rising Festival in the round Rising Presents. But for me, the most interesting part of the work is that we oversee all of the projects that we run for young people in the Roundhouse Studios. So we have a studios complex, which we opened when we reopened the Roundhouse 13 years ago. It was very much part of the plan and has remained part of the plan. And it's the reason that we do what we do. Every bit of money that we make goes back into the charity side of our work. We're currently working with about 6,000 young people a year across the genres of music, broadcast and digital, and also performing arts. So you're a non-profit? We are, yeah. Independent and non-profit. So for us, it's all about that next generation stuff. Fucking cool. Next time you're in North London, please come and visit us and I will give you a tour around the studios, which is... absolutely do that. Yeah. It's a facility which includes DJ drop-in spaces, band rehearsal spaces, a recording studio, radio station, a film TV edit suite, MIDI suites. The the only criteria for joining up, up is literally that you have to be 11 to 25 years old. It costs £20 a year to join up. If you don't have £20, then we have a system of bursaries. We're very, very, very proactive about trying to encourage young people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and those who were not born with a cultural silver spoon in their mouth. We're not, we don't see ourselves as an, as an educational space. Um, we don't give out diplomas at the end of our projects or certificates. We're, we see ourselves very much as a safe space for young people to discover not only their creativity, but also their confidence. It's fucking the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And I think it's really, I'm not sure what landscape is in the United States at the moment, but certainly in the UK over the last 
10, 15 years, there's been a really valiant attempt by serial governments to remove culture, arts and music from the school curriculums. So clearly so, taxes have cut that stuff, but thank God for Mr. Holland's Opus organization, School of yeah. Rock, and yeah. organizations like that that are, are, are there trying to keep it alive yeah. in the States. But yeah, clearly as budgets get cut, the first thing they seem to want to cut is arts. Yeah. And God forbid we take away creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% behind you. We have we work with a lot of schools in Camden, which is the borough that we're in. And, you know, the stories that you hear from there about, well, currently we're not running any arts provision because we don't, we've, the budget's been cut again. We don't have, we have half a music teacher. You know, there are some incredible, passionate, brilliant teachers working out there, but they're, they're doing it on no money. Can you give some advice to the younger people coming up in the industry on how to have career longevity? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I started out, it's going to sound a bit shocking. It was before the internet. It was before email. In fact, we used to, oh, my team get bored of me saying this, but you know, we used to pick up the phone and have conversations with people. And at the end of that conversation, you'd write a contract for a gig. That doesn't happen anymore. Instead, there's a sort of drip feed of one bit of information a time over 300 emails to put one show together. So one bit of advice I would give is, you know, make human relationships, pick up the phone to people, don't have your entire work existence based on communication via email. I also think just do your research, know what the options are. I had some vague idea that I'd like to work in the music business. I didn't know what the jobs were, but you know, you've got access to the internet now. Not only do you know what the jobs are, you can also go in and find out exactly who is doing which of those jobs, which artists they're working with. You know, if, if you want to go into management, pick a couple, pick two or three of your favorite artists, check out who's managing them. Does it happen to be the same people? Are you admiring that band's trajectory because of, you know, the management style that's behind it. Just, you know, it's all there for you to learn before you actually go out and put yourself into it. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us, Jane. Thank you, Dan. It was fun. Jane is such a badass. In the past 20 minutes, she clearly proved that just her world of who she's interacted with. It's so cool. Definitely. Thrilled to have her here on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. The podcast. With Steiny and the Pierce. Hello, this is Sarah Mertz. I work at Eventbrite, and you are listening to Promoter 101. Hey, if you want to tell us something, you can always email us at Steiny at Promoter101.net. Feel free to tell us what you're thinking, what's on your mind, maybe some cooking tips you'd like to share with the listeners. Whatever it is, maybe you do that now, because that's your cue right there. Do it, people. And we'll be back Monday at 5 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. in the East, in case you couldn't figure that out. Join us then when our special guest is going to be AEG UK's festival director, Jim King. Try to say that three times real fast as I had a trouble saying it <laughs> once real slow. <laughs> and until then, we wish you sold out shows for the week. Cheers. Call your mama. I'm so glad you did that this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sarah Beasley from Wolf Trap, and I'm on Promoter 101.